This is a bite-sized edition of Bonjour Chai, the Love is Love edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I am here with Alana Zakon in Vancouver. We are your frozen chosen. It's Pride Month in Canada, except for Quebec. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, and we are here talking to Rabbi Steve Greenberg about a new film that is at the Toronto Jewish Film Festival called Marry Me However. Uh, but before we get to our guest, let's hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bichouterie in Westmount, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in custom-designed jewelry as well as many lines, including Anzi, Deacon & Francis, Dana Bronfman, and many more. If you're looking to upgrade that engagement ring or pop the question, come talk to Eric and design the ring of your dreams. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. So it's been almost 30 years since an essay entitled Gayness and God, penned under the name Yaakov Levado, began to circulate, and it took another six years for Steve Greenberg to claim authorship over that essay and effectively come out as the first out Orthodox rabbi. Since then, he has worked at Klal, the Shalom Hartman Institute, and is now the founding director of Aishel, an organization that seeks to be a home and a future for Jews that are LGBTQ and Orthodox. Aishel sponsoring a panel at the Toronto Jewish Film Festival after the screening of the film Marry Me, However, about the phenomenon of Orthodox Jews who marry spouses of the opposite gender, despite being gay or lesbian themselves. I myself have had a friendship with Steve for 15 years now, I think, and it is an honor to welcome him to the show. Steve, how's it going? Oh, great. Thanks, Avi, for having me. To, to get started, um, you, as for many, many years, you were really the one voice that was out there that was telling people that being Orthodox and being LGBTQ um, was not necessarily a contradiction, that one can be both at the same time. And as such, you probably were much more aware of what the landscape was uh, in terms of the Canadian Orthodox LGBT uh, movement over the past 20 years, more than many other people, because that was kept private. You would go to your rabbi, nobody would talk about it. Um, but you probably have a good bird's eye view of where things went, probably since 2001, when Trembling Before God came out, right, which was a groundbreaking film, which really launched uh, like a movement, right? It, it was the uh, LGBTQ vagina monologues is what I would say, or <laughs> I don't know what else we can compare it to, but uh, sure, something like that. What was it like in the immediate aftermath in Canada versus America or in, or in Israel? And, and how have things progressed since then? Well, firstly, thank you for this opportunity. You know, the truth is, is that I've been involved um, almost inadvertently um, while I live in the U.S. In, in the Canadian challenges on this issue because I was called up by Doug Elliott, who was a lawyer involved in the Canadian effort to get same-sex marriage passed. And there was a Canadian rabbi who had written an affidavit uh, attacking same-sex marriage, claiming that Jews would, you know, would, would never support the idea of same-sex marriage. And he called me up. Somehow he had heard that I was an out Orthodox rabbi and functioning in the U.S. And he asked me to write an affidavit. And I'm proud to say that my affidavit appeared in the Canadian case, basically justifying the claim that uh, that that um, there's nothing particularly uh, unified about um, marriage in any culture, that marriage has all different kinds of frameworks. Even in the Jewish tradition, we don't do things we did before. There's not polygamy. Yeah, there was. Abraham married more than one wife, and Jacob famously married four. So part of what I saw is uh, an opportunity to participate in, a, you know, in Canada's movement. 
But I was um, soon I became, you know, embroiled in other ways. I was involved. Uh, Rabbi Aaron Levy brought myself and my and my husband to Canada for over five years to work in the Makom community for Yamim Noraim. And I saw the birth of a small but really active and articulate young community um, led by Aaron. And the fact that a gay rabbi could give sermons in an Orthodox affiliated space and a gay chazan, my husband, could daven, uh, uh, you know, kol nidre and, and, and uh, you know, and, and shachris and musaf and, and shul, um, was really articulate and powerful. And yet at the same time, when we began to do programs in Toronto, we discovered that it was pulling teeth to find people who, mm. were, who were older than 30 who would be willing to say they were gay. That's really we interesting. Had enormous difficulty finding parents. We, I run from 2010 when we began Eshel, which is an organization I helped found with Miriam Kabakov. And we began just gathering LGBTQ people in retreats. And they came from all over, even from Europe, but also from Canada and the US. And it was an incredible, powerful thing. And then we realized the parents need the same thing. And so parents came, you know, and, and started doing this work. And we thought, okay, well, let's bring Canadian Orthodox parents of LGBTQ children into the picture. And we it was so difficult because the two or three we found really didn't want to organize and really didn't want to come. They didn't, they just didn't want that public space. And I discovered that there was a living shame, even in the context in which the, you know, the relationships had calmed down and people were quietly accepting, no one wanted to stand out and create a movement of some kind. That is shifting, but it's shifting slowly. People say that, you know, Canada's 10 years behind the U.S. in this area, and I think they're probably right. You know, I always joke that um, uh, when it comes to Orthodox feminism, I use this line about how many Orthodox feminists does it take to change a light bulb, right? Ten, but they don't make a minion, and change takes time, <laughs> right? <laughs> the the idea that, like, you know, and, and it's more true in Canada than it is, I think, in America or, or elsewhere in, in, in that it's really not quite normalized yet. Um, and I'm curious, um, you know, based on your experience, are there things that people should be doing more actively to normalize the the fact that this is that this is a thing that this is not just you know an exception this is out there and this is a part of the world like i i will give you the example of my kids school um which has been around for over 50 years and i don't think that you have five out um alumni right. let alone in the school that's right right uh, so we're not even talking about in the school and having an ally group or, or anything like that. We're saying for alumni, I, I, I don't think we have five, may, maybe five. Right. Um, this may have to do with the, with the difference of, of immigration to Canada, of different kinds of people than came to America. It may have to do with the high individualized, you know, kind of the, the rugged individualism that is, the, is much more U.S. and the patchwork of communities that is much more Canadian. And the sense that belonging to the Jewish community trumps all other identities. Forgive hmm. me for no, no pun word. intended. Um, <laughs> and long so, gone. I, you know, I, I do think it's uh, it's a it's a greater challenge. I would say that what makes change is is um, people that stand up boldly and fearlessly, um, belonging uh, against the grain. Let me I'll tell you a story. Is that I came out publicly 
in the papers in um, uh, 1999. And a couple of weeks after I came out, I was walking in the street going to a Shabbat lunch and somebody was, uh, there were people pouring out of one of the very heteronormative young people's minyanim on the Upper West Side of New York. And someone started screaming at me, you public homosexual, you you disgusting piece of crap, you chayta, you machta, you sinner causing others to sin, go back to the bars and the clubs where you belong. My, my karate teacher came to my mind, which he taught me when a when a, when a punch comes, don't be there. Like, don't be the point of impact. And I basically saw him mm. yelling at a figment, figment of his imagination. He wasn't right. yelling at me. He was yelling at what he fears that didn't exist. And so I had to tell him, listen, I'm going to be your worst nightmare, my friend, because I have a hundred gay Orthodox friends. I don't go to the clubs and bars that much. I go to synagogue, you know, most of the time. And I'm going to bring my hundred gay Orthodox friends and we're going to find partners. And we're going to make babies. I didn't know how all that would happen, but I'm going to make babies. And we are going to push our baby strollers into your shuls. And listen to me, we will not leave. And it is that that makes change. It is that used to, our options were, Stay and be silent or leave and speak. Speak and leave, right? And now what makes change is respectfully and humbly staying and not being silent. Right. I was seeing in some of my research that there's been kind of a wave of that where, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the past, more people would either leave their Orthodox communities and, and choose to be their full selves um, or suppress it, like we see in in the film, uh, Marry Me, However. But now it seems like there's a movement, including with Eshel, about trying to kind of keep both those identities alive. Um, so can you speak uh, a little bit to the movie and um, how that rings true to your experience working with Eshel? Yes. Um, the, you know, uh, uh, the film by uh, Rabbi Mordechai Vardi, who is the spiritual leader of Rosh Surim, a kibbutz in Israel, and he is also a filmmaker. And because he had students that came out to him, and uh, he had his daughters actually dated men who later on revealed that they were attracted to men and they almost married them. Like he he saw this up close and he mm-hmm. realized that there was a story to be told that was very important. And um, he interviewed um, men, one woman, three men and one woman, who married against their their natural orientation um, because of religious pressure. And and the stories they tell are really, um, they're powerfully painful and so important because in the absence um, of a way to plan an adult life, if the, you, are, you're end, you end up being shipwrecked, I kind of feel like if you can't tell a 16-year-old what to expect of his future because the culture has no... There are no futures that are gay. There are only straight futures that that we are, you know, that we are. Mm. And and they're the ones we love because we were raised by heterosexual parents and wonderful families. And so why would we want anything else? And when we realize we're not built to do that, we first lie to ourselves. Then we begin to lie to the world. We begin to attempt to convince ourselves. We don't think there's a possibility of a, of a, a reasonably good life. And so... Even to say the words, I remember this myself, to say the words, I am gay to myself, I realized I couldn't do till I was 35. And the reason is, is that the moment I would say them, I'd be standing on the edge of a cliff with no future. I see. And what this film says is rabbis are responsible 
for providing a credible adult future for gay and lesbian people in their community. Right. Well, it's a, it's a systemic problem in my eyes because you see this same in a different degree and things are really changing these days. Um, but this, these kind of issues have been present for a long time in the wider society. So it's only magnified in the Orthodox community, right? What do you mean that they're available, they're, they're, they're evident in the wider community? Well, I just think like up until not that long ago, you know, if you look at the history of like when gay marriage became legal, um, the history of attacks against LGBTQ plus people, um, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty recent that that people have become more accepted in mainstream society to live more outwardly, in my view, and I'm quite young. So but from what my observation, even in my own lifetime, and I'm only 28, I've noticed a shift. And even in the Jewish community, um, growing up, I didn't, we didn't talk about these issues at all. Um, And then now in my adult life, um, in, in, you know, and I grew up modern Orthodox. Now I don't really know how to identify, but I, I would say that the people in my life are kind of a mix, probably a little bit less religious, but people are fairly like open. I, I haven't really experienced a lot of discrimination amongst my peers at all. So, but I, but I do think that the problems still exist in many parts of the world. There are still places where it's illegal. Um, so I think when you, when you put a magnifying glass on the Orthodox community, which has its uh, strong values and belief system, then yeah. the problem only becomes bigger. That, that was already there. It, do you agree with that? Yes, I think that, look, uh, recognize that at the beginning of gay liberation, it was about individual freedom. What's interesting is, is that the efforts for same-sex marriage are actually quite conservative aims. They're basically saying, yeah, we want actually what everybody else wants, which is a chance at an adult life within community that builds a future and takes on this kind of this fundamental Jewish sensibility around futurity, you know, while Jesus makes disciples, Abraham and Sarah make babies. And so it's real. one of the hard parts of being gay is the complexity around feeling part of the effort of the Jewish people to be a light into nations, d- dedicated to goodness and truth, uh, over many generations if one is not generating. And mm-hmm. so the fear, I think, from the traditional community was we need a sexuality that's generative. And I understand that fear. The question is, can, you know, we ought to be able to imagine that there are many ways to fulfill pru or revu, be fruitful and multiply. A, there are ways of being generative that aren't about producing children, and there are ways to be gay that do produce children and do make families. I'm in favor of both, of, of expanding what it means to be Jewish that doesn't only have to include the normative, you know, shimmy meets, you know, you know, Rivka, and they have four lovely kids. Are there other rich, powerful, expressive, exciting Jewish lives to be had that are not married or are not familyed and can queer people participate in that original model in kind of slightly different ways? And those, mm-hmm. both of those, I think, are, are happening in the real world. I'm, I'm, you know, I started doing uh, same-sex uh, uh, weddings and got attacked by 100 Orthodox rabbis um, 10 years ago in 2011, mm-hmm. the first one in D.C. And now... Um, increasing numbers of young people are getting married. I just had a conversation with two young men um, who were getting married in November. And 
And the, one of these weddings I did actually was between uh, Daniel Heller and Alex Taub, who told me- I wasn't going to mention names. I was at that wedding. That was one of the were, greatest weddings I've ever been to. Wedding, and they were, I called them and they said, well, please, don't worry. And Alex was, <laughs> Alex was is from Australia. Toronto. Daniel, Alex from Daniel. Australia, correct. Daniel from Dan Toronto. is from Toronto. He used to come to our house every Shabbat for dinner. And then when he moved back to Toronto, they got married. They invited us to the wedding. And oh my God, bawling my eyes out. They met on Shabbaton. They met on Friday night, accidentally sitting together, Kajboro, who is very wise. And they sat together and didn't stop talking for the whole conference and found a way to spend some time together afterwards and ended up getting married. And now they have a wonderful um, little girl named Miriam, who is just a, just adorable else. beyond words. Yeah. And they're part of an Orthodox community, you know, in Australia now. So, Do you remember this moment at that wedding where the, uh, the groom's father, wearing a big black hat with an extremely thick Hungarian accent, <laughs> is talking at the wedding, is, you know, giving the, the father of the groom's speech and, and, and saying, you know, I didn't think that I could ever accept this. Um, mm. But then I met Dan and I realized the love that they have for each other and that there was something special there. And so I tell this story a lot. Like... <laughs> it was so beautiful. Let me tell you a little bit about, you know, Alex's father is a Holocaust survivor. He has a Hungarian-Australian accent, if you can imagine such a thing. Yeah. Oh, I, and I yeah. had to come to the wedding because he wasn't going to come. And then he came mm-hmm. in to convince me. He wasn't going to walk down the aisle. And then he walked. And... Exactly. And at the wedding, he gets up and he says, I wasn't in favor of this wedding. <laughs> I didn't think a man could fall in love with a man. And I'm here to tell you, I was wrong. Wow. It was like, it was a moment. Oh I my God. I tell you the story. I begin to get teary eyed because it was an incredible moment of recognition. And this is what's happening everywhere is that when rabbis meet us, they don't see people who are trying to trash anything. They see people who are just falling in love and wanting to live. Right. And that is what this movie articulates, is that people forced to pretend they love someone they don't because that's what they're supposed to do, fail, and, and, and we need to figure out how to offer them something else. Two asides before I, say, before I talk about that. The, uh, first of all, the, uh, the, a victory for Canadian Jewry is that the kosher certifier did not pull the certification for this wedding. Um, which which could have easily been something that would have been a big deal. Um, but that didn't happen. And that's a, I, I consider that a small victory. I, I was struck. I was struck in watching the film um, by two things. Uh, and the more I think about it, the more I reflect on them, the more I realize that they're actually intertwined. And they go back to exactly this, this uh, thing that you were saying, um, that the first thing I noticed was that the rabbis, the, the male rabbis in the room, anytime they're in a room, just can't seem to understand, right, the difference between love and sex, right? And that they keep saying, right, that this is, uh, you know, this is a sin in the Torah, this is a sexual thing, and nobody seems to be able to tell them that it's about love, that love is love, and that these men just want to be in an emotional relationship with somebody um, and, and connect with them, and, and that the sex is, way, you know, way lower on the totem pole, um, but these rabbis are so focused on the legislation, and you can legislate sex, but it's hard to legislate love, and that's the, you know, for me, that's the greatest blessing that the LGBTQ community has, is that you cannot legislate love, and it's the biggest stumbling block in the Haredi community because, well, 
what am I going to say that this person shouldn't love this person? Uh, people, men love men all the time. It's just a different kind of love. I can't tell what's the limit of what, and, and, and it doesn't fit into a Talmudic discourse to discuss that. So that was the first thing that I noticed. And the other thing that I noticed was um, the women that were spiritual leaders in this rooms that they were, and the, the people that were talking to them um, right away had such empathy, right? And they're listening. And there was such, you know, such a market shift uh, and I don't want to be sexist and to say that, you know, having this, the, 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 the ear of a woman is, is so different and having that. But I realize that it's all interconnected here um, in that the women really understand what it means to love another individual, at least in, the, in this traditional environment. Um, and that the men are just focused and, and they love their wives. I'm not saying that they don't love their wives, but, but really it's about this intertwinedness. And at the end of the day, sexuality for them is, is this thing that they can legislate and they can tamp down, they can deal with. And when you don't, you're dealing with, it goes back to the story you said in the Upper West Side, right? They can't understand that there's, you know, flamboyant gays and there's boring gays. And that a lot of the gays, a lot more of the gays are the boring gays than they are the, the, the out partying gays, right? There, there are fewer gays on the circuit parties than there are at home raising kids, being domestic and saying, I don't like musicals. I like watching baseball. I, you know, the, this is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very different world, and especially the flamboyant ones, the, the out ones, the ones that are partying, they eventually also want to settle down and they want to live their lives, right? The, there are more cams in the world that used to be party animals, you know, if, we're, if you're a modern family person. Uh, there, there are more cams than mitches. There are more mitches than cams in the world, and even the cams tend to become domesticated at some point in time. But, but th- that comes down to the core of what this is, and it's about redefining marriage. Um, and, and in the Orthodox community, going to them and saying, that this is about love and it's not about sex is is it's very difficult for a lot of these men to accept that and to deal with it and to think about it. So I, I think you're right, but I do think that there's a reason that you know I want to I want to um, speak. You know, look, look the, the, my role I see is is uh, is about empathy, but not only. Mm-hmm queer um, orthodox empathy for queer people but queer empathy for orthodox leadership hmm, we don't have queer, if we don't have empathy for orthodox leadership and what they're up against we're not going to be able to communicate and so i want to understand and i have to say that the challenge for them is real because people can say listen i've fallen in love with the girl and she's not jewish and rabbis uh, you know uh, orthodox rabbis and even conservative rabbis put up a real, you know, resistance to the argument that love, love conquers all. So it's not so simple. I mean, you know, I think that that complicates this frame because Jews will say, you know, love is important, but the standing of your people and belonging to this tribal connection is more important than I. So I know that when they thinking about legitimating a sexuality that has long been thought not legitimate, they are worried in general about how indeed they valorize love. You know, this is an, it's a, you know, every opera is about this, about the structures of society and the patriarchy fighting against love, which bursts through and destroys them all. Right. And, and then, and everyone dies because when you take love and you try to fight the Montagues and the Capulets, somebody's got to die. So For those of I, you who don't know, Steve's husband is a uh, professional um, and, and, and very well acclaimed opera singer. So, opera so Steve singer is and, very, and, uh, yeah, movies, actor. Okay, movie, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but my references have uh, you know foundation. So look, uh, my claim would be is that this is different. 
This is not the same thing as telling a person they can only marry a Jew. It is telling a person they cannot have any intimate, loving framework for getting on with their lives. That is a very different statement. And so I want to I want to be, I want to help rabbis make that distinction and not throw this into you're denying our love. Well, you know, the denial of love is what happens when Orthodox rabbis tell people, well, you know, don't let yourself fall in love with a non-Jew and you won't marry one. And that's hard. And by the way, even Orthodox rabbis are realizing that's not so simple either. Like we need to find a way to welcome in some aspect of intermarriage just functionally because can a person stay a Jew even if they were into a non-Jew? And can we help them do the best they can? And I, I think that's real. By the way, but- that's an amazing phenomenon, how that has become much more accepted. And the amount of quickie conversions I've seen in the Orthodox community, um, because because children have married uh, are marrying somebody who isn't Jewish, who let's get this person Jewish quickly, who they would never accept these conversions otherwise. Correct. And it's because the emotional lives of people are, are taken seriously, not just their functional roles or their behaviors. And I think that that's partially what's moved. Um, that is why we began our, I began this work with just storytelling because I tell you, say, a story is never, is never wrong. It's just hard to listen to sometimes. It's never wrong. You used to tell us in yeshiva, you can't ask questions, can't ask Shilas on a Misa. Yeah, you can't, exactly. You can't ask Shilas on a Misa. So, so I think that the first thing that's happened is that rabbis have to hold our stories. And which is why, by the way, I want to make it clear that it's sometimes scary for them. To for listen the rabbis. To yes. To listen right. to our stories because they know that empathy will begin mm. to erode assumptions. The, the face-to-face, once you know, I, I've always believed this and I've seen this and I've, I, when I've taught these, these, these issues or these ideas, these questions, um, I'm always quick to bring up, you know, how many of you know somebody, raise your hand if you know somebody who's gay. And, you know, even in a room of 80-something, you know, bubbies, every, hands go up all the time. Um, and, I, and then I'll go and ask one step further, how many of you know somebody that's trans, that's openly trans? One or two, you know, hands are going up. And I say, that's why that movement is, is still emerging and why there's still opposition to it, right? Because, because the stories haven't yet been told and aren't being heard. Um, right. But those stories in the Orthodox community, they're there and, and you have to grapple with them. Right. Uh, you know, on that point, uh, there's going to be a panel after the film that we are running. And um, mm-hmm. we, on that panel will include uh, uh, Moti Salzberg, who was a Ner Yisrael guy. Uh, and uh, I met him at a kollel in Ohio and he came out to me and he eventually divorced. And and he's basically speaking about the, the you know, why it was that he married against his intuitions and what was the process? It's just like the the, the folks in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's uh, become a, a clinical social worker and he's really thoughtful. And uh, a Canadian woman who cannot share her name or her face, but she will be speaking because uh, there are elements of her family that don't know the truth. But she is a straight woman who was married to a gay man and a mother who is a a very religious woman in the uh, Orthodox community and how she thought about this. And one of the things that interesting Rabbi Vardy tried to do, but couldn't succeed at is getting parents of the queer people to talk mm, about how they right. urged their kid to marry and tried to stop his self-acceptance. And, and the, he, he couldn't get parents to talk. 
So it's a very interesting panel, a very unusual panel, and uh, I hope uh, you can join us on June 10th at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, and you just got to go to the... Tickets the are on the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Absolutely. You can find the film and how to see it, and you can also uh, attend the panel. I'm curious, in the film you see a variety of experiences, but having worked with Eshel for 11 years, I believe it is, um, do you feel like more often the issue for queer people, queer Jews uh, coming out is their own internal struggles with coming to terms with being a Jewish person who's also queer or the fear of coming out to their families knowing that it's going to be difficult? Or is it kind of a mix? Like, what do you think is the the bigger struggle? It depends on who, because the struggles are very, you know, there's no such thing as a queer person or a Jew. They're For just sure. queer people and Jews, and they're so different from the other. I spoke to a, um, a man who is a, a Satmar Chosid yesterday, who's married with four kids and in a lot of pain and struggling and so is his wife. Yeah. And that's a very different story. Or a collegiate uh, a mm-hmm. couple of days ago who just came out to his parents and um, not going well. But then, you know, a young lesbian who came out to her parents and they're totally supportive of her. Right. But so it depends on the dynamic. Is the world that she wants to, can, can she actually get herself into a gap program that will accept her? And how open can she be? These questions are not unified. They are all over the map, and they're very different for trans people and for non-binary people. So I would say that, um, you know, it's just our ability to make spaces that are, and this is what we do. I I don't, I can't and wouldn't want to um, make the expectation that orthodoxy as a whole will be able to digest this. What will happen is different corners of the Orthodox community will digest different pieces of it at different mm. rates. And and our goal is to make more of those spaces available, um, introduce more rabbis and principals and Jewish studies leaders to the fact that there are queer people in their classes and they don't realize it. You know, the chief rabbi of England um, might be related in some ways to, you know, to uh, the Commonwealth still. And if you are, maybe not in Montreal, but in other places anyway. Oh, no, we are we are part of the Commonwealth. We, um, you know, it's something that I've dealt with, and I've spoken to school heads about uh, his statement. I mean, it's a very, very bold statement that he came out with to well, say it's, that it's, it's, it's a guide. He came out. The Rabbi Mervis came out with something called the Guide for the Well-being of LGBTQ pupils, LGBT plus pupils in Orthodox schools in Britain. And what's fascinating is two things. One is they exist. Like there's such a thing as a as a 14 year old who's lesbian. I mean, like the fact that Orthodox schools are admitting that lesbians and gay and bisexual and transgender kids are in their schools. Well, and some huge. schools are admitting them. Right. That's huge. And some schools other, are admitting that. There are still many schools that are not. Well, it's true, but like the fact that the chief rabbi is admitting it is key. Mm-hmm. The other is it, what's their concern is not the spiritual health of these kids, which is a piece of their concern. Their concern is the well-being, which is total, which means yeah. they can't ignore this piece of their inner life as part of their well-being. That's marvelous. And then the other thing that's groundbreaking is produced in conjunction with LGBT Jews, which is on the title. Can you imagine wow. any other rabbinic document that came out with essentially a set of policies 
that didn't, that instead of just consulting other rabbis, consulted the people who were at the top, you know, at the center of the question. So the fact that this was done over a period of nine months with Benjamin Ellis and other people at Keshet UK to mm-hmm. produce this document secretly over nine months is unbelievable and very powerful. And everybody in Canada that cares about this issue should take a look at it. If there are um, resources um, for Canadian Jews that are still, you know, there in the closet, where, um, where uh, I, I know that they're there, you probably have a great handle on them. Where would you send people that are listening to this or that know somebody that they're listening to this and know somebody or themselves? Um, if you're in Toronto, if you're elsewhere in Canada, um, where should they go? Firstly, I'll say that, you know, um, it's not as developed as it is in the U.S. And so there's there is stuff developed, there's stuff growing, but it's still fledgling. And so the other thing is, is if you need help, you know, we, there are places to go to. But also, if you have uh, energy to contribute, they need you. So one is Kara Gold is the manager of the downtown downtown Jewish life at, you know, at the J and and Aaron Levy in Toronto also runs Macomb in, in, in uh, downtown Toronto. And it is very LGBT friendly, LGBT friendly. There are a number of organizations. There's Machne Lev, which is summer camp run by Young Judea, which is focused on LGBTQ youth since 2018. And there's stuff in, in Vancouver, JQT. There's a Moshe House, Maple Leaf Garden that, uh, that uh, is queer run. Moshe a lot House. of lives in a Moshe House. Right. I don't live in that. I live in Vancouver. Also, yeah, Alana yeah. lives in a Moshe house. I do. And we do a lot of events with JQD. So, so I just want to say there's stuff going on um, that is is great. You should also know that El- that Eshel runs a support group. Um, it's it's uh, it's it needs, I would say, uh, we'd love to grow it both in Toronto and in Montreal. And so you can be in touch with info at eshelonline.org and we can hook you up and connect you with them. Well, I shouldn't say hook you up. That's not what I meant. We can, <laughs> we can, this can, has come up previously in the podcast. <laughs> good. No, I'm we kidding. Can connect you to that, um, to those organizations as well. We are eager to start a parents group. And if you are a parent listening to this, or you know a parent that needs help, please connect them to us. And we have other parents in Toronto and in, and hopefully in Montreal, we're going to be beginning this as well because that need is a real one and parents can really help each other kind of manage this and help make things better for their kids and for others. Excellent. So uh, usually we, uh, we we generally close with our Nachas of the Week, um, but uh, for the bite-sized ones, we don't. But I'd like to offer you the opportunity because it's pride and we shouldn't be just talking about, you know, the the, 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 the scarier sides, the sad sides, the things that are, you know, that need to be fixed, that have to be repaired still. Um, give us a piece of Nachas um, that's been a, come across your radar recently about the uh, Canadian Orthodox, Canadian Jewish LGBTQ scene for for Pride Month. And I'm sure, I promise we'll have a better, happier Pride segment at some point over the rest of June. Okay, good. So I can't, we have both Americans and Canadians come to our national, um, uh, to our national retreats and and who are part of our Welcoming Schools project. And they're all over North America. And when we interview, we interviewed 208 Orthodox community rabbis all over North America, really including, um, you know, I think f- four different, um, uh, 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 what do you call them? Um, not states. What are they? Provinces. Provinces. Provinces excuse me. For <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so 100% of, of, of these rabbis uh, wanted the LGBT people to feel valued and respected. 
97% of our, our people we interviewed, and by the way, from right to left Orthodox, I mean, we have really Haredi people too, are aware of one member of their congregation is LGBT. 90% they had personally be involved with those people. 93% they'd advocate for children and teens who were in their schools and youth groups. 90% said that life cycle events of children of LGBT, LGBT parents could be celebrated. And 95% said that gay men could receive aliyot. I want to say that two things. One is that in Canada, it's not that good. Right. And I want to say something else, that when couples come, it's harder. Because when single people appear and the rabbi learns they're gay, it's not a communally recognized reality in such great degree. And when we show up with our partners, particularly with our partners and kids, we're real. And that's when the, you know, that's when things become more difficult. In those circumstances, it's still rising. We have a third to a half of our welcoming, our shuls, the 208 shuls, that are moving even on that on that account too. As I said, in Canada, I say if you are partnered in Canada and you really want to join an Orthodox shul, it's it's much harder to find a, well, a truly welcoming Orthodox community. And that is what we're empty, you know, aiming to change. And our parents group, more than anything else, if you help us build it, will help us change that. Amazing. The film is called Marry Me, However. It's at the Toronto Jewish Film Festival next week um, with Steve Greenberg on the panel with a variety of other individuals, Canadian and uh, international. Um, go check it out and go check out the work of Eshel at Eshel Online. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, June 3rd. Our producer is Michael Freeman, technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So-Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice and let us know what you think about our discussions on the CJN Lounge on Facebook. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Ilana Zakhar.